Forward Guidance is brought to you by Vanek, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about Vanek ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. My guest today is John Comiskey, an engineer in mortgage tech who has done a tremendous amount of work on the plumbing of the U.S. Treasury system, as well as that of the Federal Reserve. So we're talking about Treasury issuance, how the U.S. government funds itself, and what type of bills and, and, and notes that they, they issue. John, thank you so much for, for joining. Welcome. Ah, thank you. Appreciate you having me on, Jack. John, take us into your journey. How do you go from you know, working in, in mortgage tech to looking at the credit card statement of the, of the U.S. government? Throughout my career, I've built systems and I've reverse engineered systems, decomposed them in, in order to rebuild them or, or make them work. And, you know, I was kind of irritated at, at being bad for so long, generally speaking, at at investing that I wanted to get better. And in order to do that, you know, you have to understand how it actually works. Like that's, that's been the mantra that's run through my engineering career is, you know, if you don't understand how it works, then, you know, good luck in terms of good luck in terms of interpreting, you know, the results that that you get from a system or good luck trying to modify it to do something different. And so I just applied those engineering principles to to various to various problems in in the finance space. I guess you know, starting with QT. If you go back to the first thing that I that I started to decompose and break out, and of course, you know, being in mortgage, I have a lot of adjacent kind of finance adjacent adjacent knowledge. Particularly, you know, I, I know the details of how mortgages work and and such. And when when the Fed started its when the Fed started its QT program, of course, you know, if, if you recall back, you know, FinTwit back in June of, of 2022 was, was rife with all sorts of conspiracy theories about how the Fed's not doing this. The balance sheet is growing, even though we're technically supposed to be in QT. How the heck is this happening? The Fed's lying, all of that stuff, right? And I mean, look, you never know, right? As an engineer, I am open to the possibility that, well, maybe they are. Would I think they are? No. I think on the surface, that's kind of an absurd conclusion to reach. And I know a little bit about how mortgages work. And I know a little bit about how mortgages settle in the TBA market, et cetera, all of that. And so at the time, I was like, well, you know, this is kind of fun. I just joined Twitter. I just starting to to really kind of get into all of this. And I'll go, well, let me see, see if I can actually do an engineering analysis on this, reverse engineer how the QT program works. And once I was able to do it, then I was like, well, let me write about this because I don't see anybody else who's like written about it in this detail of how it works. And that's when I started my sub, uh, my start, pardon me, started my sub stack and, and did so. And it's kind of grown steadily from there. It's evolved from just putting out the, the, the regular monthly roll-off reports, the QT roll-off reports that I publish. It, it's kind of progressed from there to last May when we were in the midst of the debt ceiling impasse. And at the time, there's a, there was a, a Twitter user who had, I guess, asked slash challenged in a good way, me to project the the X date. I just got to stop uh, to ex explain a few terms. So yeah, 
UT is quantitative tightening, Fed rolling down its balance sheet, balance sheet declining. Uh, I think it's to be announced. So you're in the mortgage business and you basically, it sounds like you start, I'm just you know, trying to tell myself a, a story here. You, you see people looking probably on Fred.com, the, the St. Louis Fed website of the Fed's balance sheet of how many treasuries and mortgage-backed securities it has. The Federal Reserve is saying they're doing quantitative tightening, but the line is still going up. And so you know, there are theories, conspiracy theories that, you know, they could be true, but they're not, but they're, they could be true that the Fed is basically lying to us. And you wanted to dig into the mechanics of why that actually, why, why was the line going up? So why was the line going up? Well, with respect to the mortgage-backed securities, it's going up because they hit the balance sheet when they settle, but the Fed, but they sometimes take three months to settle from when the, from when the, the Fed kind of commits to buying them. So while the Fed in June of 2022 had, I guess back then, I think it was 17 and a half billion, and they actually were hitting the cap then. So they committed to buy less, you know, 17 and a half billion less, but they still had, I don't, I don't know what the, the exact numbers were anymore, but maybe they had 40, 45 billion that they had committed to buy two months ago. That's now just hitting the balance sheet in June. So when that hits the balance sheet, it rises the MBS line by, you know, say, 40 billion. And that's when people are, are all um, trying to figure out how, how that's working when the line's going up. But the Fed is saying that, um, that it should be going down. And it's just, you know, an understanding of the actual mechanics behind what it is. You can see there isn't actually a conspiracy going on. The Fed is doing what they're saying that they're doing. Just they're not doing what people assume should be happening. Um, and so and they're that. including on the line old stuff that they bought when they were still doing quantitative easing. Okay, so that's that's mortgage-backed securities. That's still your world of mortgages. But now tell us, moving on to the treasury, and I guess you uh, to the, the the debt ceiling. What is the remind us what the X date is? Okay, so the X date was in there. You know, the definition, the precise definition of it uh, might be a little nebulous, but. It would have been the day when the Treasury couldn't fully meet its obligations, I guess, is kind of a nice broad way of putting it. So does that mean the TGA is zero? Well, maybe, maybe not. But it's Treasury general account, like the banking. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Treasury's checking account at the Fed, if you will. So it would have it. The X date would have been the date that the that the that the Treasury would have either not met an obligation. Right either didn't make a payment it was supposed to make or or what have you or they would have engaged in whatever they would have done how you know if if congress had not actually reached an agreement to to suspend the debt ceiling but the x date was the day that it would have it would have um, they would have ran out of money i guess looking at it in a colloquial sense mm-hmm. and i'm remembering people were saying maybe i did an interview with in April, and people were saying it would be June, but maybe July, or maybe even August, September, October. And so, what were you, what were you finding at the time? So, I I initially thought that it was going to be somewhere in late July, but you know, applying an engineering analysis of it, it's like I'm trying to prove that I'm trying to to model what the system is in order to substantiate that conclusion, and then you know. And really, it's more have model it and then let that make the conclusion for me instead of me trying to to guess it based off of whatever it is that I think that I know, right? But no, I I did not think it was going to be in early June because as it turned out, there was some 
material, there were material pieces of information that I missed in my initial analysis that, that were relevant to it being, it being in June. But in terms of trying to actually project it, the way that I approach the problem, right, is it's like, well, okay, we need to be able to project what are the spending and the, and the deposit flows for, for the treasury, right? Like every day they make a bunch of payments out from, from the TGA, right, from their checking account at the Fed, and they take a bunch of money in from various sources, like withholding taxes, non-withheld taxes at certain points and times of the year. They get money from the, you know, the post office takes in money. There's, there's all sorts of these deposit categories and all sorts of these withdrawal categories. And if you, if you take them in the aggregate, well, then withdrawals exceed deposits, then money's leaving the TGA, at least from like a, a taxing and spending perspective. Because on the other side of that, you've got debt redemptions and you've got, and you've got new debt, new debt issuance. And that's adding money to or pulling money from the TGA each day where there are where there are debt issuances and redemptions, you know, just depending. So you got to kind of add all those sorts of things up. But my main the kind of the 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 big the big modeling effort initially was to try to model all of those spending flows, the withdrawal flows, and then as a result also model the tax flows and do it at a day level granularity because that the day levels act the days actually matter, right? Whether or not the X date was on June 3rd versus June 8th or June 9th, you know, that that sort of thing would potentially matter, right? Depending on what type of an investor you are and whatnot, that might be valuable information. So I was trying to do it with a day level granularity. And the reality of it was it I actually the model was did a did a fairly good job at actually projecting the the um, the with the withdrawal flows, the spending, and the tax flows, the daily flows. That didn't end up turning out to be the source of error that caused me to initially think it was going to be in late July and then have it move into June. Rather, it was uh, the easy to forget bill drop, right? And so what that is, is that's a that's an aspect of, of the debt. So when the treasury, when the treasury issues treasury bills, the way that they pay interest on treasury bills is different than it is with coupons. Like with coupons, they they issue the coupon, and then if it's the coupon, say it's a ten year ten year note, and it's paying four percent, then then every six months, I think it is, you get uh, two bucks. Yeah, they they pay out four percent, and you 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 know they do that they do that every six months until until it's matures and then you then you get back par right you get back what you what you initially put into it and that's the way that they that's the way that they pay those interest on on the coupons but for bills they don't do that for bills rather what they do because they're so short dated is let's say that it's a 13 week treasury bill then and let's say that they're going to issue 50 billion dollars par of of those 13 week 13 week treasury bills then what they'll do is instead they'll collect Instead of collecting fifty billion from from the folks that purchase these bills, instead they'll collect, you know, forty nine forty nine and a half billion or whatever it works out in order to get to an investment rate that matches whatever the whatever that that particular treasury bill auctioned at. But the point being that they pay interest by collecting less, but they collect less upfront. 
And so in a sense, like in a cash flow basis, that hits immediately. And I wasn't accounting for it. And every every Tuesday and Thursday when they when they issue when they issue treasury bills, this amounts to, you know, somewhere between one and a half billion to maybe as much as like four or five billion in lost income. And my model at the time was not taking that into account. And because I wasn't taking it into account, I thought there was going to be more income than than there actually was. And so that that brought it forward. And then and then there was a really technical issue with the Social Security Trust Funds and the way that the way that the Treasury pays in to the Social Security Trust Funds and catch up payments and whatnot, which we can go into if you'd like. I can I can explain it, but it's the bottom line is that created that created essentially a 30 30 billion ish, $35 billion ish obligation that that Treasury couldn't pay that hit in the or that was going to hit in the first week of June. And the interesting thing about that though is that wasn't a cash flow issue at all. It was just a matter of they couldn't issue the debt to pay into the to pay into the trust fund because they were at the debt ceiling and they couldn't like redeem, say, other publicly outstanding debt in order to to keep it under the debt ceiling because they didn't have the cash to do it. And thus, boom, you get the X date, which legit really would have been the first week of June, like the sixth or the seventh. I forget exactly what it is now. Um, but of course, Congress came to their senses and struck a deal and suspended the debt debt ceiling. So we so we didn't hit that. We didn't hit figuring out what the what was going to actually happen had we hit it, you know. So that's the X date was less the so the X date was sooner than you had thought it was. So you're you're still, you know, learning, you're in the advance, but you're you're becoming, you know, the the expert you are now. I'll just re- review a few plumbing things. The so Congress chooses how much the US government borrows or, you know, borrows negative money by running a surplus. And it's Treasury, the U.S. Treasury Department, who the you know the the boss of that now is Treasury Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who used to be the Fed Chair, and you know her department chooses how much money we're going to not how much money, but how we're going to issue. Are we going to issue basically one day money that we have to you know issue it again tomorrow, or are we going to issue a hundred year you know money? And basically, it's from you know, what thirty days or ninety days to probably one month to to thirty years, and. That's a that's a big range, uh, you know. If you if you issue a thirty year bond when interest rates are at zero and then interest rates go to ten percent, you know the people who bought the bonds are uh, in a lot of pain and you're feeling like a genius. Whereas if you know they go from zero to ten percent and you issued it at you know one month bills, your debt in you know increase your interest expense rises exponentially as interest rates rise. So this point of duration is interest rate sensitivity is 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 extremely important. And as you say, bills. The short-term stuff, I believe, two years and in, you know, it's like you 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 borrow you borrow ninety nine dollars, you pay back a hundred, no coupon, no you know dividend kind of. Whereas a ten year, yeah, you get that t- quarterly or maybe twice t- twice a year coupon. So okay, now take us to the you going into maybe let's say October, the bond market is melting down. Uh, many people, myself included, who you know like to think of themselves as you know f- following the Federal Reserve a lot. Are not paying a lot of attention at all, really, to what the treasury is, how the treasury is going to fund itself and issue itself. Uh, I believe on the first day of November, it makes its announcement. What was that announcement, and and how did that compare to your expectations going in? Because it coincided with a pretty severe rally in 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 bonds and stocks. 
that is still ongoing. It did, yeah. So when the Treasury made their quarterly refunding announcement back in back in November, I had projected a week before ish that they were going to um, significantly more substantially than they ended up doing up the amount of coupons that would that they would issue. And and, and, did, and why did you think that, John? Let me take a step back to the the QRA that happened prior to November in in August, the last one, the one that actually did really up coupon issuance, which also kind of uh, started a a or was at the beginning of bonds not doing so well for the next couple of months. But in in that August QRA, the the TBAC the um, advisory committee to the treasury borrowing advisory committee, um, they had done, they kind of included materials. Like most of the QRAs, they, there's some charge, there's some little project that the, or there's some project that, that the TBAC is doing and that gets presented during this, this QRA process. And this particular project was projecting, projecting coupon issuance and, and, composition of 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 the issuance bills versus coupons over over the next I don't know three three four quarters and they went through a variety of scenarios because treasury contemplated and they largely have they have increased their coupon issuance significantly versus where it was prior to prior to this past August but they anticipated the need to to issue more coupons and so they laid out sorry but John the, what is causing that need like in a parallel universe one in where the Fed is issuing only one month bills and one in which the Federal Reserve is issuing only, I'm saying Fed, I meant Treasury. The Treasury is issuing only 30-year bonds. What are the different inputs about why the Treasury is issuing short-term versus long-term? So one of those one of those inputs is that historically, Treasury has tried to keep it to 15 to 20% of total bills issuance. But that's not, but that's not like, a legal requirement or requirement by statute, something of that nature. It's been their target ban for, for bill issuance for, for a while. Although historically, historically, as they've said recently, I mean, uh, historically, I think that average is actually a little north of 20. It's like 22.5 or something like that. But the desire to the desire to stay within to stay within that 15 to 20 percent bands requires treasury to to or require treasury to increase coupons because if you recall back then bills the, the issuance of bills was significantly rising why because we had to like the TGA got down into the double digits super crazy low right before the debt ceiling impasse was resolved and treasury had started to refill kind of the, we'll call it the structural level of the TGA or the, the minimum level that they like to keep it at. They had started to do that refill back in, look, really as soon as the debt ceiling was resolved and then continuing that through July. And they kept that process up all the way through early December, actually, was until this past week, they had done you know a series of of increases to the amount of bills that they were they were issuing. I mean, they issued an enormous amount of bills in Q and the, the the last half of of last year. And as a result, that skews that skews that that pushed that bill that bill rate 
significantly above the 20%. I mean, it would be worse if they had not, if they had not up up the the coupon issuance. But you know, taking a step back even from there at a more basic level, because the more the more and more debt we 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 take on, well, we have to issue more and more debt. I mean, we've either got to do it through bills or we got to do it through coupons. It's got to go somewhere. So so you know, the treasury knows what's upcoming, like what what coupons are redeeming. So I say a 10-year note that they issued in 1994, they know when that's redeeming and they know what the rate that they have now is. And based on whatever that net is, they know kind of structurally based on the rate they have, what 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 additional money will be coming in to fund deficit spending. But as they looked forward, they said, well, we need more, we need more, more coupons in order to meet the financing need and to try to stay closer to the to the 15 to 20% range. And so they laid out these three scenarios in the in the August QRA and I chose to kind of split them down the middle between increased issuance at the shorter end of the curve versus at you know increasing more of the longer tenors and I was incorrect. Well, I Directionally, I was incorrect in any event. They did not increase coupons as much as I thought they would by taking a blend of the three scenarios that they laid out. They increased them significantly less. In November. In November. And more so, and I thought this was also super interesting, They so the TBAC recommended that they that they do less than I thought the TBAC would. And that's what actually comes out in the QA is the TBAC's recommended financing tables. But on top of that, Treasury further reduced by a billion, you know, for both November and then also December and January, the increase to the 10 and the 30. So at the longer, at the longer tenors, Treasury kind of stepped in and knocked it down, even below even what the TBAC was recommending that they that they do. And so on the whole, it was a signal that we're and um, signals, literal statement, we're not going to issue as much as people thought that we were. So long, long way of putting it, I, I thought they would issue more coupons than they ended up doing. Well, so did everyone in the market, apparently, because on November 1st, when that was issued was pretty much the top in yields. And you know, the 10 years moved something close to, to 100 basis points since then. Okay, so we're recording this on Wednesday, January 24th, I believe next week, what is that? Feb- February first is that when the quarterly refunding announcement is is made? And so, what what is your ex? You've run the models. What does your model say about how the treasury is going to fund itself going forward? Okay, and so something to bear in mind, right? The amount of coupons that they that they decide to issue is that's choice for treasury, right? My model doesn't really project that. My model projects the overall financing need. And then treasurer is going to decide what it decides on coupon issuance. And then whatever they don't in terms of coupon issuance, they have to make up for in bills, right? So bills are kind of the, they're the thing that moves, right? They've got a financing need, whatever that is. And of course, that's, you know, that varies as time evolves and tax flows do or do not materialize as projected and spending flows maybe a little more, a little less, but that's fixed. They choose on the coupons and then bills make up the difference, if you will. So, but what do my, what do my models show? Well, well first, let me address the coupon issuance. The, cause I actually think, 
I think this is kind of more or less less controversial this time. I do think that they'll further increase the 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 coupons in in this QRA primarily because they they said they would. I mean, there was language in the TBACS report to the secretary in the November QRA that said an additional quarter of increases of similar increases would be was likely. And I don't see any real macro need for that. That hasn't really shifted now versus then. So I guess, again, I'm making a call that they'll kind of do what they say or do what they intend or kind of alluded to 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 doing and that they'll do increases in line with what we've actually seen, right? So I project they'll increase in in Q2 in line with what they're going to increase in Q1, which matches what they did in Q4. That may or may not turn out to be exactly correct, but it it it's not going to it's probably not going to be off by too by too much and I don't think that's particularly I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it is controversial, but to me the more interesting thing is that when you fix the coupon issuance, that the, you know, folks, I think folks have a mindset that, well, the treasury is issuing a lot of bills right now. And they are. In fact, they just increased the amount of bills that they're, that they're issuing this week and, and next. But that will stop. That will stop at the end of March and reverse, reverse not insignificantly in April. It's a function of the mechanics. They only need so much money. They, they, they don't want to have the TGA run significantly higher than it needs to. And the flows in April and then May and also June dictate that they just won't need as much money because of the way that the flows come in, which is, which is to a degree calendar effects and, and seasonality. And that's what my model models out in daily level detail to try to get to to try to get to answers there. So it's, it's taxes, money coming in. Yeah, for the most part it is taxes. Although although you have to be careful in terms of calendar effects because you know when the QA when the QRA comes out and it does a financing estimate that assumes an end of quarter level. That end of quarter level is a calendar specific date. And if that end of quarter happens on a settlement date, then you're going to have like debt flows on that settlement date, you know, both redemptions and issuance, whatever it is for that particular date that hit on the end of quarter and will affect what the end of quarter TGA balance is. Whereas if the quarter ends like it will in Q2 in June or on June 28th or 29th, I forget, but it's not the, the end of the month. So the end of the month, the settlement of the end of the month, June maturities will not be reflected in the TGA. So you have to be a little bit, you have to be a little bit careful. But again, that kind of goes towards what's the approach that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to capture all of that, like it's almost like hyper seasonality, right? It's like a day level flow seasonality, both across the spending patterns and across the across the debt issuance and the uh, you know the maturity, the maturity of debt and and the corresponding flows that go with it. Like gold did. Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. 
Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you can lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So what specifically is your model forecasting for the next week's number? Just how much the treasury will have to borrow? Well, so I I do my projection in the old format, which I'm not entirely sure that treasury is going to continue in this next QRA, but the old format gave you the net, the net coupons that were, uh, that will, that will be out in Q2, right? Or well, that they provisionally project. Um, and then as well, it would tell you what the net new bills were. And so for the last couple of QRAs, the net new bills has been huge, right? You know, 500 billion, I think it was like 850 billion, the one, the quarter prior to that. And for next quarter, for Q2, not Q1, right? But for Q2, that number is, I think, negative 293 billion is what my, is what my, uh, what my model projects will be the actual bill, net bill issuance over the quarter, which means like that's negative. They're going to redeem more bills than they issue in the calendar quarter of Q2. And, and how many coupons do you think they're going to issue? So issue raw or issue net? Raw. Q2. So yeah, if you add up all of the coupons in Q2, it's actually 1144 is... Um, would be the total coupons that would be issued in Q2. And of course- So, so $1.1 trillion, $1, yeah. $1,144 billion. So. Yeah, but there's a little bit of calendar effect quirkiness that goes on there, right? Like technically, they're going to settle the end of month March issuance that, that'll, settle on, that'll settle on 4.1. Of course, the flip side to that is that, that the, the end of month June won't hit until- until early July, but at the end of June, you've got the tips and FRNs that issue at that point in time. So there's a little bit of calendar effect quirkiness, but directionally, yeah, over a trillion in the in issued coupons. That won't be the net, right? The net of the that trillion minus the coupons that are maturing during that time period. My model projects it to be 560 in the net, with about 580 that are maturing over that time, and you know that is that is public publicly held bills that are maturing. So what the Fed's doing and maturing its own, or well, Fed isn't maturing its bills, but it it's the Fed's holdings that mature during that time period. Treasury either just and then the the Fed may or may not reinvest any of any of that, depending on whether or not it's above the the treasury cap, sixty billion treasury cap. So net 563 issuance, gross 1.1 trillion. I mean, it sounds like a lot, but is that a lot? I mean, relative to previous numbers or by ever what metric you you judge? No, I mean it's certainly larger than it was than it was like a year, year and a half ago. But but then prior to the flood of taxes that came in in 2022, which pushed down the need for for Treasury to issue as much. I think they were doing comparable amount of, of raw coupons back in back in that time period. It wasn't, I mean, comparable in any event, may not have been quite this much, might have been a little more, but it was in the ballpark. Got it. I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to, you know, twenty March 2020 when the floodgates were open. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, they didn't do that with coupons. They did that with bills. But yeah, I mean, the floodgates, the floodgates were absolutely open 
back then. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just starting to think, I mean, this stuff is really complicated and it's very hard to understand and describe because it's, it's, you know, I mean, the Navy needs a new ship. Here's a certain amount of money. Okay. The healthcare, here's a new ship. Here, here's the money. I mean, you're, you know, every one of those things is an Excel, you know, cell in your, in your Excel spreadsheet. And so it just strikes me how difficult it is for people to like forecast the future of the monetary system about whether, you know, is, is mass are massive fiscal deficits and, you know, debt expansion. Is there a limit is, you know, I mean, who knows if, you know, if, if people, you know, don't even know what's going on on the day-to-day basis. I mean, it's just so hard to forecast. That's just a thought I have. (laughs) Yeah. Without even tackling kind of broad questions like that, like, what is the point at which you can't sustain it or the system can't sustain it? And just trying to project out, you know, where we're going to, where we're going to precisely be nine months from now is hard. There's a lot of underlying flows that have to be modeled and they have to be modeled correct. And like, if you follow along when I, like if folks follow along when I post the, the results comparing my model to what the actuals came in on the daily treasury statements, I mean, it does pretty well, but there's, there's always, there's usually some sort of variance, sometimes significantly, like just today, the mailed in estimated tax receipts didn't come in quite as heavy as my model was, was projecting, but that might make itself up tomorrow. I mean, eventually that dies off when we get to the end of January, that flow largely stops as tax inputs, but, but there's just a lot of the individual underlying flows. But once you start to model it at that level, which is really, I think to me, that's the value of the approach, right? Because mistakes that get made and project like errors that can yeah, rephrase that errors that happen as a part of the projection. If you, if you project at all these lower underlying levels, well, then you get this like Fermi effect where they start to cancel out some. And when you, when you get to the top line number, what is the TGA level? You actually can start to, to get fairly, fairly accurate. So you try to get each individual flow correct. And then knowing that you won't, but then you put them all into the mix and and you can get a lot, get a lot more accurate than you think that you can, I guess, or at least I thought that that I would be able to do. Like it's turned out to be considerably more accurate than I thought it would be. And so you tried to you know, follow the breadcrumbs and create this model to understand the financial system, and you know, for for in, investing in bonds and stocks and and the market. How do you tie this to the market? I mean, when there are more long term bonds in the market. You know, and demand is the same. Presumably, the yield are a little bit higher. The price is a little bit lower. How do you how do you get from where where your model is to kind of market analysis? Yeah, I mean, if you increase the if you increase the supply of something, then then price of it should go down, right? Which for bonds, of course, means yields go up, and and vice versa. So I would think that that would be the would be the effects. I mean, occasionally, and then. You know, and look, I'm an avid reader of folks who are way, way more informed and have way more experience in terms of actually tying it to the to to the market and the market effects. Like, I mean, folk like the Andy Constans of the world do a phenomenal job on 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 kind of projecting that 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 sort of thing. You know, I try to apply the general principles and then try to take the analysis of 
smart folks who have been doing it for a lot longer than me and then and then go from that. But yeah, I mean, the essence being that the more duration that the market is forced to observe, which or not observe, to absorb, which would be which would be coupons, you know, all else equal should should lead to ri- to less risk appetite from the the general public for other assets and less risk appetite for other assets is going to you know, probably translate to lower prices, right? It should, I guess, as the theory goes. What are Treasury's goals right now? And, you know, if in it's January 24th, 2025, and Secretary Yellen is sitting with her team at Treasury, and they're saying, oh, wow, we did a great job last year. What will have, what, what, what metrics are they looking for? Just, I mean, are they running it like a corporation where, okay, we have a, you know, if the yields curve inverted, we want to issue a lot of longer term debt to lock in that money. Obviously, you know, if you and if you think rates are going to go up, that's even better. If you think rates are going to go down, maybe you you finance more shorter term. Obviously it's hard to know, but you know, from reading their reports extensively, they they must express a preference for this, a preference for that. What are they trying to maximize optimize for? And what are they trying to avoid? To a degree I'm conjecturing here because because I don't actually work at Treasury. But you know, first and foremost, Treasury has to pay the bills. They have to meet the obligations as they come due. I think related to that is they have to risk manage, they have to risk manage their bank account, right? In the same way that, you know, we we at home, you know, we we keep a certain level of money in our bank account to meet unexpected, unexpected expenses that might come up and, and happen. The Treasury does the same. With respect to the, with respect to maintaining the level of the of the TGA, of course, in the middle of debt ceiling impasses, that goes out the window because they don't really have any other choice, and they're just trying to get by on fumes until Congress finally suspends or ups the debt limit. But generally speaking, the Treasury is aiming to keep the TGA no lower than a week ahead's gross debt redemption. So they kind of assume that. That they have to pay, they have to redeem the debt, but that the debt markets are closed. So whatever that gross debt redemptions are, plus whatever the net fiscal outflow is, so the tax and spend difference over that. So that creates minimum levels. So pay the bills, make sure that they're doing a good job managing managing risk, right, and keeping that the TGA above above what the policy that they've that they've stated that minimum risk level is for it. So those are kind of their, I think that their first two goals. But then once you get beyond that, then then they've got two other goals that I believe that they are that they are chasing. One of which is to minimize the cost to the taxpayer of the issuance, right? So I think one of the ways that you can interpret what happened in the November QRA is that you know the term premium had had spiked. It was just a lot more expensive relative to where it was in August when the TBAC charge with all those issuance scenarios that I laid out previously, it was a lot more expensive to issue at the longer end than it was, than it, or be hit, it had become relatively more expensive up there. And so they're, they're constantly trying to minimize expense to the, to the treasury. So it made sort of a sense to not issue as heavy at the, at the longer, at the longer end. So, so they're trying to, they're trying to minimize unnecessary cost to the treasury an issue where it's, you know, where, where they can capture like a liquidity premium or whatnot, blah, 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 blah. The, and as, and as a result of that, they also don't want the TGA to, you know, just 
they don't want to build it up to one and a half trillion and let it sit there, which is way more than than the minimum level policy would prescribe that I described earlier. Why? Because they got to carry that. They got to pay interest on that in some way, shape, or form. And that although do, do, when they so when they deposit money, the TGA are the assets of the Treasury held at the Federal Reserve. Are they earning interest on that? No, not from the Fed. No. Really? Okay. But of course, they're paying interest because they have to pay interest on whatever debt that they issued in order to to build up the TGA, right? Yeah. So in 2020, that the crisis to fund the you know war level amounts of you know fiscal stimulus from Congress, the Treasury loaded up like 1.7 trillion dollars. But you're saying that's not a normal phenomenon, and now they want to you know keep it. So what is what is the band of the lower limit for the Treasury general account and to the upper limit? I don't think that there technically is one because intramonth it varies a great deal. And when you get into a month like when you get into a month like April, it it varies even more, right? Because you have just an as you know an absolute flood of tax receipts that come in right around the middle to the to just after it in the month. The what what Treasuries what I think Treasury is doing there, right, is more is more a matter of well, a it's managing it's managing the high like the minimum level that that's prescribed, and that minimum level varies varies significantly again, you know, intramonth. And for anybody who's interested in seeing like literally what those what that policy level would be, I actually detailed it in my in my latest Substack. You kind of have to squint in the the images of it. Sorry, but but they're all there between now and the end of September. But so the the other thing though that Treasury is trying to manage. Because because what they could do is like at the very beginning of April, after they crest the high minimum level required for the TGA at the end of March, knowing that the tax receipts are fixing the flood in, they could dial back, they could dial back bill auctions, right? And to a degree they will, right? That's why they're going to get to negative 300-ish um, bill issuance in, in Q2. Uh, but they're not going to slam on the brakes. They're not going to go from issuing 90 billion four uh, four week bills every Tuesday to issuing, you know, 50 billion four week bills. Um, or at least they they've not done that in the past, and they've and they've specified that having kind of predictable and more gradual changes to the issuance is is one of the things that they're trying to trying to balance. Right? They don't want to. They don't want the issuance rates to be as volatile as the flows indicate they could be, right, in order to, to still maintain that TGA minimum level. So again, long way of saying that I don't think there is, I don't think that there's an effective ban to it, more so than, than they don't want the TGA to run hot, if you will, more, like way more than the, the minimum prescribed level for longer than is for longer than is necessary, but they're balancing that against gradual and predictable bill issuance while still needing to navigate over those points in time where the week ahead gross debt plus the, the week ahead net fiscal is high and they, they got to have enough there. And then they want to have gradual issuance to, to kind of smooth it out between those high points. And so we talked a lot about the tre- uh, treasury funding itself by basically filling the hole uh, left by the negative balance by spend the government spending more than it takes in. So we talked about the taking in the taxes. I mean, and that must be 
tough because you know in, in a hot economy with a hot stock market, capital gains taxes are pretty you know hot. Uh, whereas you know in a in a recession, unemployment you know spending goes up and and you know taxes go down, and that's not a government choice. That's just you know part of automatic stabilizers. But let's talk about the spending and and. Uh, discretionary spending. When you when you you know review the fi- the U.S. fiscal deficit and what the U.S. government is spending its money on, start with the biggest items, and then we'll get down. I imagine Social Security is in there, but basically, why is the U.S. deficit so big? Well, I mean, in a literal sense, it's so big because they're spending more than they take in, right? But where does that break? Where does that that spending break down? The the top spending category as Social Security. Social, social security benefit checks that go out four times, four times a month on the third of the month. And then, you know, the, the second, third and fourth Wednesday, it, it's I wasn't aware they get them every, every week, you know, the, the, you know, for a job, you only get every, every other week. Well, they, the, the benefits don't go out to the same recipient every week. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, yeah. cohorts of, of recipients and it, it's roughly a quarter. It's not exactly, and that's changing just a little bit. But one cohort goes out on the third of the month. Another cohort goes out on the second Wednesday, and then so forth and so on for the third and the fourth Wednesday. But so you got payments too. You got the Social Security benefits payments. That's the number one expense. You've got payments into the the healthcare trust funds, right? And then spending like payments to to the states for Medicaid. That's another particularly large category. So the Med- Medicare, right? When I say the, the healthcare trust funds, that's really kind of code for Medicare and, <laughs> and the various payments that they have to do there. So it's there's a lot of there's a lot of health spending there. There's there's defense spending that's a large, that's a large, you know, federal salaries are not huge, but aren't nothing. That's a fairly, that's a fairly big flow. And then you've got, you know, myriad of other of other smaller flows that that crop up and add up to to you know fair amount. <laughs> right. But so all of those factors though, I think were in play in 2019 and for my entire life, and you know, probably your entire life. Uh, obviously if, if there's a war, you, you spend more and that's d- discretionary. But when you look at the deficit now compared to 2019. It's a lot larger. Okay, in 2020 and 2021, we had stimulus checks. We had enhanced unemployment. We had you know a child tax credit, enhanced child tax credit. What right now? The deficit is so big last year. What? Why? When you compare that to 2019, what is it so? Why? Why is it so big? And, and how has it gotten bigger? I guess maybe one thing is the Inflation Reduction Act has incentivized a lot of production. So incentivize, you know, is code for lower taxes. So that that's one, right? One, we have higher interest expense now. I mean, A, we have considerably more debt in total than we did back in 2019. And the Treasury for new issuance, right? Because of course, the stuff that was issued in 2019, we're still paying interest on it, but that was issued at 2019 rates. Um, but all the new issuance is we're paying, we're paying uh, considerably considerably higher interest on. And of course that matters a lot when you've shifted when you've shifted your issuance to the front part of the curve, right? Because with the bills, you know, we're there's not a treasury bill that's out there that has, you know, that's a remnant or a holdover from from a lower from a lower interest rate time. They're all 
they're all somewhere between four and five and a half percent, depending on when they were issued. So you got higher interest charges that 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 come in. Yeah, beyond that, when it comes to the spending, of course, I only run the model in a forward in a forward projection mode. It uses it takes as one of its input um, all the historical spending information, right? Because the treasury makes that makes that available, right? You can get the the detailed spending in all of those withdrawal categories that we see on the daily treasury statements or um, or the the receipts and the and the deposit side of that you can you can see that going back a decade plus of course it's changed over time like they've recategorized what this you know what some of these categories are in a general sense that's been a great thing because they're making it more granular it's a little a little easier to see or it's it's more granular right you just have more information but of course that makes the apples to apples comparison a little more challenging on some on some of the categories, because if they previously reported spending in an unclassified category, and now they've broken it out into five categories that are classified, well, you can't really do an apples to apples comparison on on what the now broken out category is to what it was back then, not using the treasury data. There are other data sources out there where I may be able to do that. I think it's usaspending.gov, et cetera, but I have not had, I haven't had a chance to go try to, you know, input that data set and and see where that where that takes it. But so back to the point of does the model know? Well, the model knows what what the what the spending was and it knows what the taxes were and to a degree it is using that as an input in terms of projecting um what you know what the the future receipts and what the future spending will be, although not going back to a level of 2019. There's not really a lot of information in 2019 that helps other than establishing the patterns of seasonality of when the flows hit, right? Taxes hit at a certain point in time when you're talking about like non-withheld income or when you're talking about corporate income taxes. They don't come in in a uniformish manner like withholding does throughout the year. And being able to to understand, you know, exactly what the what the historical norms are for the percentage of say corporate income taxes that come in say June versus May versus January versus September, right? There's the, the historical information. The model uses that in order to, to help it form the daily level projections of what, of, what the, of what the flows are likely to be for a day in the future. Would you say that your model places a greater importance on predicting the timing of cash flows than the magnitude and size of cash flows? It puts equal importance on both. It's now, and you know, being being kind of transparent about the way that some of those some of those things are modeled, the model doesn't go look at prospective agency budgets, right? Honestly, you might actually be able to do that with with generative AI. It, that that might be something that's possible, but right now that AI is me. I go through and dig the the dig through agency budgets, you know, proposed for fiscal year 24, et cetera, in order to help inform using also what did they spend last year and whatnot for some of the for some of the spending categories in order to reach to reach a a conclusion. Because you have to be careful, right? There were, as you mentioned, you had you had the Inflation Reduction Act, you had you had CARES, right? You had, I think it's 
was it ARP, which was another one of the COVID. PP. Uh, well, yeah, you did. You had you had that, which which and all of that influences spending flows. But some of those are stopping, right? Like you may have had spending that was authorized and intended to be to be spent last year, but was a one-time, was like a one-time thing for a particular agency. Like I think there was, you know, a good example of that flow is the, the pension, pension benefit, I forget the exact category, but there were, there was spending that was kind of specifically authorized to go help pension plans, right? But that that spending is now largely done. So while if you just looked at that particular withdrawal category for last year and said, oh, well, that's going to grow at 2% or 1% or whatever you might want to throw in there, well, you're going to be very wrong because that spending flow is going to be dramatically different um, next year due to the one-time spending. So you have to study what, you know, what were the expenditures last year, but then you also have to put that into the context of what was the legislation that authorized it and is that legislation expiring? Are those spending provisions um, expiring. And I'm 100% certain I didn't get all these things right. There's, you know, tons and tons of them, but for all of the big categories, you know, that's, that's the process is to go through and to try to dig it. And then in terms of trying to reach the day, like how do, how do I, how do I know that on, you know, this particular Tuesday, it's going to be this particular amount that gets into a, a number of kind of data mining techniques, looking at historical patterns, right? You know, how, how do how the mailed-in estimated tax payments, which has kind of been a thorn in the side of my model the last couple of days? What are well, the- aren't, aren't people not are, like? Isn't California they're they're not paying their taxes for like six months? No, 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 no. That's done. Although that was a very real thing last year, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Not not this year. I meant I meant last year. Yeah. Yeah, and that's but that and that's another great example. That's another great example of of you know folks saw the taxes last year around April. And they're like, wow, these things are super light. And they were definitely light relative to 2022, even if you take out the whole California thing. The capital gains taxes last year, which largely hit in the mid-April when people do their tax returns, they did not hit nearly as strong as they did in, in 2022. But a big because chunk of- There was a huge bull market in 2021, and there was a bear market in 2022. There was a bull market in stocks in 2021, and that caused- capital gains taxes to be high for the year of 2022. So you're a year ahead of me. And then the bear market was in 2022. That caused lower taxes in 2023. I'm a year behind you. Taxes are a year ahead of the of the market. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, you have to think these things through because it, it actually makes a it actually makes a big difference, right? And it's it's why like when you look at where the market ended last year, I think it's a reasonable inference that capital gains are going to overperform versus where they where they were where they were last year. Henceforth, more more taxes that are going to come in April, which then filters through to they need to issue less bills. But the but the Cal the California thing is a the California thing is a good it's a good it's a good thing to bear in mind, right? Because it had a number it had a number of different effects. It were it it both made the deficit in fiscal year 23 look worse than it actually was. We did collect that money. We just didn't collect it until October or November. So it collected in fiscal year 24, but really it should have been collected in fiscal year 23 because that's the normal time when it would have come in. So we just shifted that, which will also have the effect of making the actual fiscal year 24 deficit 
be less than it otherwise would be because we just shifted part of the uh, shifted part of the, the deficit from one fiscal year to the next. When does the fiscal year begin? Uh, September 30th is the end of the fiscal year. So October 1st is the beginning of the fiscal year. Okay. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So I'm looking on Fred.com of the U.S. deficit 2022, you know, a whopping $3.1 trillion. 2021, $2.77 trillion. So the deficit got smaller. 2022, $1.3, $1.4 trillion. And last year, the deficit increased to $1.7 trillion. You're saying a lot of that was because taxes weren't coming in until fiscal year 2024, even though it actually was 2023? Uh, I don't want to say a lot of that, right? I mean, it was probably 75 to, to 100 billion. I'm kind of napkining, napkining that. It's so it's not, I mean, it's not the lion's share by any stretch. But then if you take that, you know, let's say it's 100 and you flip that, you flip that, oh, that's going to create less deficit in 24. I mean, it ends up being like a 200 you know, 200 magnitude swing between the two years, which again is not nothing, but it's one of those individual flows that you have to take into account. And if you don't, then, you know, you're going to have problematic projections and it really matters at the collection points when those, when those taxes get collected. So what was deferred to like October, normally there's almost no corporate income taxes that come in. And yet in October of this year, they, 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 flooded in because that was when the deadline was delayed to. And so did you, so you said your model is looking at past models. So there's a financial model of, oh, most of the time, you know, when the VIX is at 13, it tends to go to 12. You know, that works, except when it doesn't, then you, know, you, you get blown up. But then you can actually you know, use your, your actual brain to say, like, what is, you know, oh, this seasonal force is going to affect it. So actually, I think volatility is going to go up. So how much of the model is you doing doing the thinking of hey model look at this look at this versus just the model says what the model says and you know i'm i'm walking down with my stone tablet and we got to listen to what the model is and the answer is it depends it depends on it depends on the particular categories so honestly for the vast majority of the categories it's pretty much all the model with a with maybe a multiplier and there a small multiplier to increase the magnitude of either the deposit or the withdrawal flows. Because most, like if you go look at the daily treasury statement, it's like two pages worth of withdrawal categories and, dep- and deposit categories in really small print, right? Like, I mean, 60, 70, 100, 120 different categories on, on each side of that. Um, the vast majority of them are so small that it doesn't really move the needle. And for those, it's entirely the model. There's, I have a generalized technique to go in and look at how, look at how the 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 within a month how the that money was um, either spent or deposited, and then it and then it does the it makes a projection and and moves on. And it's really only the larger the larger ones where I start to to intervene as well and research to make sure that there's that there's not some sort of a Pickup, which of course becomes problematic occasionally with things like with like FDIC, right? Over the last year, where normally that's a pretty quiet flow, where they collect, you know, they collect in and FDIC deposits in relatively low. There's not a lot withdrawals, so that would probably normally be a category that would be that would fall into my generalized technique, but. But FDIC, of course, you've got to deal with a little differently because of what's been happening with it. Sometimes huge daily flows into or out of it that relates to the FDIC 
resolving the receiverships and whatnot that because yeah they had they had a busy year last year yeah <laughs> so uh what you know looking in congress and i don't know if you're, you're watching c-span but what are are you seeing that you think could be the new programs that could make the deficit bigger or smaller you know one thing that just i, I saw in the news is so the employee retention credits which is you know in the process of expiring that is going to be replaced they said okay this was worth 40 billion or 80 billion we're actually going to you know make a new tax credit that will fill that hole for small businesses and workers which you know perhaps that's a better 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 use of it but you know are you then putting that into the model or like and and, and i just chose that example like what else you know are you seeing in congress because there's a narrative that you know congress only wants to spend 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 yeah i mean <laughs> i learned that distinction i think a little bit but the well, and they and they don't want to tax, right? They don't want to yes. correspondingly tax to to meet the uh, the financing requirement. They but, want to borrow, borrow, borrow. I should say because you can spend yes. and tax, and you don't have to borrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I think I think so. My understanding, I, I think of what you were describing is there's and I, I forget exactly the sponsors on it was like widen hide something like that. In any event, but the there is a there is there is a, a house a house bill that was introduced recently that would it would do a couple of things it would a it would increase the earned income tax credit and then it would also um, re reinstate some depreciation that businesses can take over over like bonuses and i think r&d etc and if it if it becomes law and that also had something to do with the, they were going to partly pay for it by stopping the the ERC claims, accelerating, yeah, accelerating forward the date for that. And the, the net, the net on that for, I think like the Warden School of Business does a projection. And I think the net on that for, you know, 24 would be, would be something, something to the tune of like a hundred billion less that comes in, right? Because in in an effect on the flows, like the corporate tax flows that my model is expecting in April will be less because those corporations are going to they're going to take advantage of of the depreciation that they otherwise couldn't, which means they're going to pay less in 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 taxes in April than they would have to if that legislation does not pass. And then eventually, in later years, they'll have to pay more. But but upfront and you know, for a model run out to the end of fiscal year 24, I really only care about the about the impact on on 24. So to your question of, well, what, how do I deal with that in the model? And the answer is, I just have to wait. I mean, A, it's not a thing certain. B, honestly, I'm skeptical it will pass. And then even if it does pass, well, what are, what are the timeframes in which it's going to pass? Because if it, if that actually passed in mid-April, well, then the, the depreciation that's retroactive that will significantly reduce their tax bill probably won't see that in their April return. Probably have to wait until the next you know, corporate tax payment is due in June, and then we would see it there. And that would have a big impact. So if it passes, then what I'll do is I'll reconfigure slash you know, code how a flow needs to work within the model, and then I'll rerun it and it'll generate the it'll generate all the new the new output, including as part of that, I'll have to likely tinker with the debt issuance, the bill issuance, really, because that's how they, 
that's how they account for kind of the, the daily shifts in the funding need. That's their, I guess, their high frequency way to either, you know, increase the amount of money coming in or, or decrease it. And the, the issuance that I expect between now and the end of fiscal year 24 for bills, which I project in the article that I, my most recent article, well, then that won't come to pass. You know, if they need more money, then they're going to have to not decrease bill issuance as much as I expect in April. And, and then that'll be that. And then the model will reach different conclusions, but, but that's kind of the process and how I deal with the evolving. And it's, Unfortunately, well, or maybe fortunately, it's just a never-ending battle in order to keep it, keep the model up to date and thus, and thus accurate going forward, or as accurate as it can be. The countdown for the world's leading institutional crypto conference has begun. The Digital Asset Summit runs from March 18th to March 20th, 2024 in London, and you don't want to miss it. Here's a little bit of alpha. Ticket prices are going to increase on February 5th. This is your chance to secure your spot at a lower rate before the price hike. Save $215 by using my personal code FG10, FG for forward guidance, before prices rise on February 5th. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Mm. John, as we reach a close, I want to ask you about a topic that I I have a slightly better understanding of more than the treasury, and that is quantitative tightening. You wrote recently, I believe is your penultimate piece, about how a statement in the December FOMC minutes that you know my frequent collaborator Joseph Wang has highlighted that the Treasury would start basically to to taper soon. And you note, oh, you know, bam, na- now go the gongs of Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. They're writing that the Fe- the Fed could begin to taper as soon as April. You actually had some doubts about that. Is that correct? And wh- why did you have some doubts? So the doubts are purely mechanically based, right? And they amount to they amount to I just don't think they need to do it from a reserve perspective. So I guess starting starting from the perspective of like the Fed does not want to have a September 2019 style repo blow up, right? And legit, back in September of 2019, there were not enough reserves to both meet what banks felt that they needed intraday in order to meet their resolution resolution liquidity that's that's required right that's that's required by the regulators and also kind of shift reserves to to people who need those reserves in repo right and when they stopped meeting that 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 need you know the the repo rates went through the roof and and the Fed had to step in. There just weren't enough reserves in the system back then. But that was like 1.4 trillion in aggregate reserves, bank reserves in in the system back in September 2019. And now we are way beyond that. And when I say reserves, I'm not just saying bank reserves as you would see on like the on the H4, but really bank reserves plus RRP because because that's that's the better metric cuz I mean, the the RRP can quickly turn into can quickly turn into reserves if if the money market funds have a better place to go to go. Um, somebody will give them, you know, somebody in repo will give them more than than RRP. Then you know, or if the Treasury bill will pay them more than RRP, then it the RRP can kind of quickly train change to reserves. So, but if you add up. RRP and bank reserves, and I forget where it exactly is now. It's probably like 4.2-ish, but it's way, way higher than it was at 1.4. Now, granted, 
the Fed's more cautious. And, you know, there's been much more deposit growth in the system than, than, than 2019. So it stands to reason that today the snap level of reserves, right? The What's is, snap level. I colloquially, that's when repo goes crazy, right? Okay. Okay. Um, like, like, Oh snap. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh snap. Like okay. 20, like what happened in September of 2019? Mm-hmm. The I, it's, it would be considered considerably higher now. And of course the, the Fed is going to be, is going to be, more cautious with that, right? And I think President Logan's remarks a week or two ago certainly indicated that, you know, when RRP starts getting towards zero, then they only have, then they only have bank reserves, right? It's not bank reserves and RRP. And at that point, what is the level, that lowest comfortable level of reserves, LCLOR, as you see it acronymed? Like, I think the Fed is going to, it's, they're going to, they want to ease into that. They don't want to, they don't want to hurdle past it and get anywhere close to having what happened in September 2019. Of course, they also had the standing repo facility, which which gives them an additional measure of of way. And they're also, you know, as 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 Joseph has pointed out in a tweet recently, you know, they're the the talk of destigmatizing the discount window, you know, that gives another lever for or reserves to kind of meet the need of whatever the repo market is without the repo market going crazy. But again, getting back to a mechanical point, I just don't think we're anywhere near we're anywhere near that level. Would it taper? Would it taper that starts in April or May? Would it would it stun me? I mean, I guess it wouldn't, but I'm not sure that the RP will be zero by then. Um, in fact, I don't think it will. The reason being that it's what, 6.20, 6.30 today, something like that. We have another 400-ish net bills to issue, assuming all of those ended up with money, you know, MMFs, then then there would still be 200, 200 billion that MMFs would be putting into, into RP. And then as I talked about earlier, the flows change. And the, the bill issuance goes negative. So all things equal, that actually kind of pushes up. Now, the reserves that need to pay taxes and where they come from, because I mean, realize the TGA is going to spike from like 700 in early April to about 1.1 trillion is what my model projects in the four, five, six days after the, the 15th of May. So in and late-ish May, you know, the, when the TGA is at its peak, when all the tax flows have kind of finally materialized in, the TGA is going to be pretty high. And temporarily, that's going to pull from somewhere. It's going to pull from either bank reserves. Some of it might come in from ultimately from RRP, right? Because corporations typically typically have a lot of the money that they're going to remit on the 15th. They've got that in, in MMFs and then they you know, they liquidated, you know, the day before making the payment to the, to, to the treasury. So you could say those, those funds kind of source from, from the RP, but in any event, back to the original point of why isn't it going to be, uh, why do I, I just don't think that, I don't think that they'll need to do it, but even if they do taper it, I, I don't think we're anywhere mechanically near the lowest comfortable level of reserves. I mean, if RP is zero on June 30th, then then bank reserves is going to be around 3.7 trillion. And I, yeah, it just doesn't gel with what the Fed has said. And like as a percentage of 
of GDP. And it doesn't kind of, to me, pass the SNP test of, well, it kind of went crazy at 1.4. Yeah, I mean, there's been substantial deposit growth since then, but but a 1.4 to 3.7 being, or, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't really gel in my mind. The math doesn't really add up. So I think they'll be able to run QT before it becomes a reserves problem for, for quite, you know, quite a bit longer, but it depends on what that, what that, that LCLOR is and the repo rates will eventually tell us that story, I think. Very interesting. And of course the, the, the elephant in the room is, no one really knows the true lowest comfortable level of, of reserves. You know, the monetary system we live in is like, what, 16 years old after quantitative easing before, you know, reserves didn't pay or, you know, basically a, a tiny fraction of the reserves there are now. So, so, so no one knows. So you said, you know, when the repo crisis, ha- I think you said the, the reserves were 1.4 trillion. Now they're, they're well, you know, roughly 4 trillion or, or more if you include RRP. Why did you say the Treasury General account will get to 1.1 trillion? That seems like a lot. It seems it's bigger than any time since 2021, right? It's a function of the projection of what I think taxes are going to be. Structurally speaking, the the high points the, the high points in the minimum prescribed policy level are higher now than they were than they would have been back then. So when you combine that they have to end March with a higher level of TGA than they would have back then, you combine that with with the flows that that are going to come in 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 April, and that's where it goes. But if I got taxes wrong, like if there's less taxes that show up in April, well then it won't be that much. So would it be, you know, I mean, it just depends on how much air I ultimately have in 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 the tax projections. But if if they project as I think that they will, then then yeah, I think we're going to get to 1.1 trillion before it will drain down through the rest of May. So I'm going to ask you a question that, you know, it's impossible to answer, but just, you know, put your guessing hat on. This is, this is a podcast. And, you know, like if I, I know that, okay, interest expense is higher because interest rates are higher and the treasury rolled its, its debt up. And I also understand that, that, you know, as a result, the, the, the deficit is, is higher. And I can understand those two things can, can spiral. However, it's not like your model is telling you like, John, like, you know, the financial system is crashing, but you know, interest rates, the only way my, you know, this works is if interest rates go back to zero, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a small percentage of the deficit increase is the fiscal interest expense, right? So you're talking about the change in the, the change in the, the deficit this year versus last, a small percent of that is the change in, or is the, the increased interest expense? Is that what yes. the question is? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's not massive, right? I mean, it, it is, there definitely is more interest expense this year versus last. The, I guess, sorry, sorry, John, what I'm asking you is, do you have a view on whether the current deficit is sustainable with interest rates at five and a half percent or is 4%, 3% or even 0% necessary for, you know, before this spirals out of control? No, I don't. Not an informed one. I mean, I think you interest expense. I mean, Congress could always tax, right? And if they taxed, then you take back some of the money that you're putting into the economy with that interest expense, right? Because you're paying interest to somebody, and you could you can you can kind of tax some of that back. I guess in theory, they could increase the amount of tax that they that that they put or that they levy on in, on 
treasury interest income, right? I mean, now it's just general income and whatever, but there's nothing that prohibits, I don't think, I mean, well, not, I don't think there's nothing that prohibits them from creating it. I mean, not that I think Congress would, right? Like the, the tax code for as much of a mess as it is now, I don't think that they're going to do that to it. But so in terms of back to the point or your question about sustainability, I mean, I think really the macro environment is more, you know, what's, what's going to happen to the private, to the private sector, right? And what's going to happen when people have to refinance, when debt matures and they have to refinance at the higher rates and what's that going to, what's that eventually going to do? Like for the, the treasury themselves, well, they could do the tax more or they could just issue more and, you know, they, they're, the treasury debt will always be bought. <laughs> yeah, they may have to pay more for it, but they're, they're, the treasury, the treasury will be fine. Um, it's, you know, the private sector players may not be. Yeah. And like, I think it would be a lot harder for there to be a British guilt, UK guilt crisis in the US just because the dollar is the you know, world reserve currency. But even if there were, you know, number one, the Fed can step in. And also, I think there's a mechanism where, okay, the treasury, the fiscal agent sells a bunch of paper of, of bonds, the supply goes up, so price down, yield up, and then yields, you know, sufficiently high yields, then slow the economy. And then there's more demand for debt. So it's, it's kind of this self-regulating mechanism, which can get out of control, but it hasn't yet. Yeah. And it's worked so far, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, well, John, so my last question, what are your overall broad learnings? You've learned a lot about incredibly in the weeds stuff on you know, the, tr the tr treasury's funding cycle, but your overall quest to learn more about finance in general, what are some broad principles, some, some very general macro bird's eye learnings that you can share with our audience as we as we reach close i think what's resonated with me and maybe it resonates with me because because you know at, at my core i'm i'm an engineer right but what resonates with me is that there's a lot that's out there that's mechanical and there's value in understanding what those mechanics are when you look at what's happening in the stock market day to day when you like the options and like the option Greeks and the need for, you know, dealers to hedge positions, et cetera, that, that creates, that creates flows. Right. And that's all mechanical. Like I don't understand those mechanics. Like I understand the treasury mechanics, but you know, some people likely do. I mean, there, there's some folks that, that seem to right that out in, out in, in Fintwood, but those, those are mechanical flows. Or like when you when Michael Green talks about the the underlying you know mechanical mechanical flows of passive investing and what that actually does with respect to to like index funds and whatnot, like those mechanical flows matter matter a lot. And I think that there's you know there's a lot of value in being able to understand at a detailed level what those flows are. So that to me has probably been the has been the I don't know, I guess, key principle that that I've taken from this <laughs> journey over the last couple of years to to try to model it myself, right? Yeah. And a lot is mechanical. Some is discretionary, though. And when there is a discretionary move, so I guess for Treasury, that comes from Congress about the size of the deficit. When yep. Treasury comes is how to fund it. Yep. The Federal Reserve can do whatever it wants, but, you know, it only kind of you know pulls plays an audible in a crisis it it does like to be orderly and follow a rule and have the market see that it's yeah, following the rule that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, well, it's so interesting. I what what advice, John, would you give for for the audience? I'm going to say it's for the audience, but really, it's from for me because you know I I've kind of had a, a learning journey like you have, but just with the the Federal Reserve and nowhere near as deep as yours is. But with the Treasury, I really you know I, I really need I'm kind of a noob. So what? How do people get started? If they want to get into the treasury, where do they go? Okay. Other than so, your Substack, which they should check out. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the, the starting point is every day they release all the spending and the taxes that they collected the day before or the business day before in any event. And they, and they also reflect all of the debt that they issued. I mean, basically you can see the, you, know, you can see the, the treasury's kind of daily ledger of what they're doing in the daily treasury statement. So to me, that's kind of the key that's the starting that's the starting point you know go look at it see what the treasury is spending money on and then once you start to get a sense of of what that is and how that works and unfortunately this gets into skill sets right like in one's ability to go take in large some you know large amounts of data and then slice and dice it but if you have that capability you know if you've got capability to to work with databases and the data that's inside of them you can go get all this data from from Treasury themselves. You can get it from the Fed. I mean, the Fed details their holdings, not just at a broad level, like if you go to the if you go to the SOMA of the SOMA page, but you can see the actual MBS that they that they hold. Yeah, there's all there's all this detail that that's out there that's available. So so I guess if you wanna, I mean, look, if you wanna understand how it how it works at a broad level, well then you know, I mean, you're you're in the realm of reading reading folks like like you know like Joseph Wang's Central Banking 101, or or read read papers that are out there that have been written like economic papers, not so much for what they're like trying to prove or not prove, but just because of the background that they that they gave you. Like, there's an amazing paper out there where reserves ample enough, I think, is the name of it. Daryl Duffy was one of the author one of the authors of the paper. And it's a phenomenal look into into what into what happens and you know, like the core thesis, which is interesting, but then it gets into like a lot of complicated math, which you know many folks won't really be be able to to keep up with. But don't you know, like go read the paper just for the introduction and the and the yeah. background and the context, because that gives you that gives you an enormous enormous understanding, and then. Go read everything, all the global money notes from Zoltan. I mean, those things are mm-hmm. absolute gold. Well, John, thanks so much for, for joining us. People can find you on Twitter at uh, John Comiskey 77 and your Substack, John Comiskey.substack.com. Thanks yes. again, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.